I like to listen to the yogis, to you guys come into the hall for a talk. And um, sometimes it's like a, um, a rainstorm that comes in. And then, uh, you know, as a rainstorm ends, the, um, there are fewer and fewer drops and it gets quieter and quieter. And then sometimes in the hall, there'll be this moment when the rain ends and the hall just perfectly settles. But it doesn't always happen on the first night. (laughs) It didn't happen tonight. (laughs) It's because this first day, right, is like so wild for folks. And it's so, um, often it can be really uh, a challenge just to make it through the first day of a retreat. Um, Yeah, it's kind of different than being out there in our usual daily lives, no? It's great to be here with you all. I want to read a story from Ajahn Chah. He's a, um, or was, uh, he's passed away now, a famous Thai Buddhist master known for his very down-to-earth teachings. One day a famous woman lecturer on Buddhist metaphysics came to see Ajahn Chah. This woman gave periodic teachings in Bangkok on the Abhidhamma, the Abhidhamma's Buddhist psychology, and complex Buddhist psychology. In talking to Ajahn Chah, she detailed how important it was for people to understand Buddhist philosophy and psychology, and how much her students benefited from their study with her. She asked him whether he agreed with the importance of such understanding. Yes, very important, he agreed. Delighted, she further questioned whether he had his own students learn Abhidhamma. Oh yes, of course. And where, she asked, did he recommend they start, which books and studies were best? Only here, he said, pointing to his heart. Only here. So that's what we're studying here our own hearts and our own minds. We're studying uh, everything about Buddhist psychology right here with our own hearts and minds. In um, many Buddhist uh, countries or many languages in the East, heart and mind is the same word. And in um, some cases, the mind is felt to reside here. We, we in the West tend to think the mind is here. But we can think of just perhaps the connection between the two. Or we can think of the mind here if we'd like, if it brings a different um, flavor. So here we are studying our hearts and minds, studying Buddhist psychology. So we often come to retreats with some um, expectations about how it's going to be. We were talking at dinner tonight, the three of us, after our groups, about how how this often seems to happen and uh, that we come with ideas about how it should be. And we were talking about how um, interesting it might be to give the following instructions to you all. So we come up here in the morning and we say, okay, sit in total ease. Clear your mind. 
Don't have any thoughts. Let go of all the tension in your body and rest in complete tranquility. (laughs) How would you feel if we gave you those instructions? Uh, You might be a little frustrated with us. And yet, it's interesting because if you look, sometimes we like have those kinds of expectations in our mind. They might not even be conscious, but that that's what should be happening. And so we see, we are talking in my group today about how that... um, brings a lot of suffering, right, to have this idea or some ideal. I call it spiritual idealism, when we have some idea of how we should be as spiritual people or as um, uh, people with uh, personal growth, however you might want to look at it. And we have some ideal, and then we try to fit into it, or we think we should fit into it, or we measure ourselves up against fitting into it. And... um, it often leads to lots of suffering. Spiritual idealism. My good friend Greg, a fellow teacher, he said that over the years of his practice, he's been practicing about 30, 40 years, he said over the years of practice, his practice has been a continual lowering of expectations. I would say that's true for me too. And it's such a relief. It's like so great to not have expectations about how things ought to be. Uh, because the expectations actually block us from seeing what is true. They, they're like a filter in between our awareness our, and, and what is true, what is really true for us. I think open-hearted curiosity works better. Ajahn Chah again, this is how he describes meditation. Put a chair in the middle of the room, sit in the chair, see who comes to visit. That's that kind of open-hearted receptivity that we are cultivating in our practice. Every time we come in the hall, every time we um, do a walking period, every time we come on a retreat, every moment of intention, of wakefulness, see who comes to visit. And one form of project that we might have when we come on retreat is, I'm going to work through this. And we have something that we're going to work through when we're here. Why limit things that much? That's a form of expectation, right? So we can let that go too. We can let our, our self-improvement projects go while we're here also. And we can rest in a kind of um, trust in our own unfolding. Ray Bradbury says, life should be touched, not strangled. (laughs) We learn to touch life. That's, again, that kind of open-heartedness and the gentleness 
when we have too many projects in our meditation, it's like we, we're, we're holding it so tight, we're strangling our own life. Let life be touched. I um, found not too long ago a, a book, a title of a book. I have the cover here. It says, The Ten Natural Laws of Successful Time and Life Management, Proven Strategies for Increased Productivity and Inner Peace. <laughs> so often we kind of, maybe we like approach our practice like this. We're hoping for increased productivity and inner peace. You know, we're going to get something out of our practice. We're going to have something that we produced at the end. And yet we're also going to have inner peace. I think this is the American way. (laughs) And here we're going to try something. We try something a bit more radical. It's a kind of openness, a kind of not knowing, a receptivity, a willingness, a willingness to be touched by life. And what we get when we give up on these expectations and these projects, what we get is connection. And this is, I would say it's one of our deepest, deepest wishes is for connection. Connection to life. There's a poem that I've always loved, which I think kind of describes this this connection, and our yearning for it too. It's um, called Ornithology in a World of Flux by um, Robert Warren, I think. No, Robert, somebody will know the name, not me. Oh, Robert Penn Warren, famous poet, (laughs) whose name I don't know. (laughs) Ornithology in a World of Flux. It was only a bird call at evening, unidentified, as I came from the spring with water across the rocky back pasture. But I stood stood so still, sky above was not stiller than sky in pale water. Years pass, all places and faces fade, some people have died, and I stand in a far land, the evening still, and am at last sure that I miss more that stillness at bird call than some things that were to fail later. That moment of bird call that he describes is this like complete connection, unobstructed connection with the moment. Just a bird call, just a breath, just a pain in the knee, just grief. This is our deep wish for this connection, this aliveness, this wholeness that comes when there isn't obstruction between, I was going to say between us, but what do I mean by us? (laughs) Between the experience and the unobstructed knowing of it. 
And yet, and yet, the first day of a retreat doesn't often feel like ornithology in a world of flux. It might feel a little bit more like this um, this poem from from the time of the Buddha. So one time a Brahmin was asking this Buddha this question. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, O Buddha, who can disentangle this tangle? Sounds like our question too. Sometimes it's great to hear that 2,600 years ago, the same questions were being asked. Who can disentangle this tangle? A wise person established in non-harming, developing heart and understanding, an ardent practitioner, they can disentangle this tangle. So you could say our whole practice is about disentangling the tangle, which then allows this, this direct connection with life. And starting with ethics as a base, establishing ourselves in non-harming, which we talked about last night, our, uh, Alexis talked about last night with the precepts as uh, the mindfulness trainings as, as a place to start there. And then we develop heart and understanding. That's what we're doing in our practice. And then it says, an ardent practitioner, they can disentangle the tangle. So what's this word ardent? To me, this word ardent is wholeheartedness. So we bring, we bring wholehearted enthusiasm to our practice. And this helps us disentangle the tangle. But first we have to get here, right? We have to arrive in reality. So a lot of practice is like, how do we arrive um, here? And we have this anchor as a, as a home base, as a way to um, um, provide some steadiness perhaps in this world of flux, this world of change. But like, how are we with the anchor? Have you noticed that um, perhaps if you try to be with the anchor, have you noticed how that results? What happens if we try to be with the breath? Like try to hold on to the breath or try to, right? That, like that, that's the tangle. <laughs> when there's this trying to get it right, We're back to expectation. Increased productivity. (laughs) Um, And the tangle. And yet that's the only way we know. In some ways it's the only way we know. So we have to watch ourselves kind of do this. Watch ourselves try and see that it doesn't work that way. (coughs) And so then we... We experiment with what kind of ease or what kind of relaxation brings about this connection that we so desire.
we start to see that the root of the tangle, the tangle that we're disentangling, we start to see that the root of it is is um, the mind's uh, relationship to this changing sense experience. And basically the, the changing um what we call feeling tone of experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. All of experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or is experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And what we see is that the mind has um, a lot of opinions about that <laughs> and uh, gets to work <laughs> trying to figure out like how to manage this world. We have this world of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and it's changing all the time. We have these six things that are happening, the six sense bases with the flavor of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and it's changing. And so the mind and heart is like, how can I manage this? How can I manage this so that, so that it's just right? basically so that it's just pleasant and that the unpleasant doesn't happen. And you can see how busy we have to be, how much work it is, because it's always changing. You can't peg it down and make it stay a certain way. And, and so it's, um, we watch our minds do this, right? You've probably noticed it today. So we see this is the, this is the core of the tangle. And then what we also see is the power of mindfulness to put a little gap, to put a pause, to start to loosen the tangles so that this habitual conditioning has some room to transform or to, um, to play out in a different way, to play out in the possibility that we can... rest at ease in this flow of change. The possibility that we can connect with experiences both pleasant and unpleasant and neutral without um, argument, without argument against the way life is against the truth of change. And yet, argue we will. <laughs> we, um, we, we have a lot of um, connecting with life is pretty intense. So we have some trepidation about it. And it's pretty intense because of this truth of change. Just change, change, so much change. And because of this truth of, of we can't control whether what we get is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And yet, to be able to connect, we have to be um, able to approach these truths and find some way that um, you could say the heart and mind can accommodate to reality, to the truth. And yet we don't go there easy. 
we go there kicking and screaming for the most part. There's a story I want to share with you that kind of describes. This is from Joseph Goldstein. In India, I was living in a little hut about six feet by seven feet. It had a canvas flap instead of a door. I was sitting on my bed meditating, and a cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. I took the cat and tossed it out the door. Ten seconds later, it was back on my lap. We got into a sort of dance, this cat and I. I tossed it out because I was trying to meditate to get enlightened. But the cat kept returning. I was getting more and more irritated, more and more annoyed with the persistence of the cat. Finally, after about a half hour of this coming in and tossing out, I had to surrender. There was nothing else to do. There was no way to block the door. I sat there, the cat came back in, and it got in my lap. But I did not do anything. I just let go. Thirty seconds later, the cat got up and walked out. Like, to me, this story describes our whole meditation practice. (laughs) So there's, like, something comes along, we're not happy about it, it's either something unpleasant we don't want or something pleasant is leaving. We resist, we resist, we resist, we resist, and finally, we're like, okay, perhaps I can just be with this. We surrender. And then there's room for things to change. I can't make any promises. <laughs> but but that, that act of surrender is so powerful. So whatever it might be, it might be sleepiness. We're sleepy, we're hating it, we're hating it, we're hating it. We try to do what's helpful to wake up, that's great, and we're not waking up, we're sleepy, we hate it, we hate it, and then perhaps we're like, oh, okay, it's just sleepiness. You can learn everything you need to know from sleepiness. Or restlessness, right? I'll still catch myself sometime, I'll be sitting, and I'm trying, you know, like to be with the breath, and the mind's really busy, so I'm trying to calm the mind. Mind's really busy trying to calm the mind. And then I'll be like, oh, the mind is restless. This is restlessness. It's like I can still, after 33 years of, of meditation, you know, I can still get like into that, like, oh, like I'm trying to calm, but what I'm really trying to do in that case is to get rid of restlessness, to deny restlessness. And then when I can say, oh, it's just restlessness, then that's okay. The mind's thinking, feels a little jumpy, jumps around a lot. Restlessness is like this. You can learn everything you need to know from restlessness. So a lot about a lot of meditation is kind of this resistance, surrender, resistance, surrender, or resistance, letting go. It's not like we're letting go of the thing; we're letting go of the contraction, the the insistence that things be different than they are or be otherwise. 
been thinking about the heart some, and sometimes I think our hearts are a little bit like a feral cat. Many years ago, my partner and I adopted a feral cat from IMS here. This cat was six months old and had been living in the woods. At one point, there were a number of feral cats, and they were trying to kind of take care of it. So we took her home, and um, she was not interested in our plans and and projects for connecting with her. (laughs) We named her La Ferosa, which means a ferocious one in Spanish. And... um, or Lala. Sometimes we called her Lala when we were feeling affectionate. <laughs> so Lala, um, basically, if you've ever been around feral cats, if you try to approach them too directly and with too much um, intention, they're not going to go for it. They, uh, they're the boss. They, they set the rules for connection, like how much it's going to happen. And and if you try to move in on them, uh, it's not good. La Ferosa, finally, one time when we were out of town, she moved into our neighbor's um, woodpile and lived out the rest of her life there. <laughs> so then we adopted two more cats, two more little baby feral cats here. But these were like four weeks old, really young. The mom had the, the kittens in the in the garage there. And... Um, so we brought them home, and there's there's two of them. There's Sparky and there's Pearl. Um, Sparky loves to connect, just like, you know, he's always wanting to be there, connect. Um, very friendly, easy to get along with. Pearl's in between La Ferosa and Sparky. Pearl, like, wants to connect, but she's kind of not sure about it. So she'll kind of come up to you like she wants you to pet her and then you'll pet her and she'll run away or she won't let you pet her she'll look like skitter off but then she'll come back and so what's great about Pearl is we've had her for like 10 years and she's still making social progress which um, (laughs) I consider amazing that she's still learning (laughs) so I think our hearts most of our hearts are like Pearl like we want to connect we want to connect with reality, but wow, we're not sure, you know? So we kind of like maybe approach life and then we're like, no, I don't think so. And the no, I don't think so is like aversion or grasping or restlessness, all these ways we have of like pulling back. And the thing about feral cats and our feral hearts is you can't push it. Just like you can't push the connection with a feral cat. We can't push our own practice. Our hearts will open in their own time. And we learn to trust that. We learn to trust the timing of our own unfolding. We learn a kind of relaxation and receptiveness, a willingness to listen and to wait. Take our seat. Yes, we can establish the intention to be mindful, to be present, to be kind. And then, what unfolds? Who comes to visit? We're sitting in that chair. Who comes to visit? 
What an adventure and how much courage it takes. You're also courageous. You might not know it, but you are. You're so courageous that you're willing to take this seat and to not have a distraction right at hand, right? You're in this hall. You're more or less trapped. <laughs> you know, like worse comes to worse, you could run out of the hall screaming, but the, the social price with it for that would be pretty high. So, so you're more or less, you know, you commit to these 45 minutes to sit here. That takes so much courage. It's so beautiful. The sincerity. We were talking at dinner about the sincerity we feel in this group. Your sincerity is so beautiful. I hope you treasure it. I hope you appreciate it. Your willingness to do um, this. I was going to say work, but I don't want to use that word. To engage in this journey or adventure of, of connecting with reality right here, our own hearts and minds, so that we can develop heart and understanding and disentangle the tangles so that we begin to live with more peace. And then we begin to share that with our families, with our friends, with our communities, with this planet, with this world. It's our hope, this ability to wake up and to know and to look deeply within. So we're connecting with these experiences that arise. And um, I would say we're, both, we're learning to both own them and to not own them. So these experiences that come up, body sensations, thoughts, emotions. On one level, we do have to kind of own them as our own experience. We have to take responsibility for dealing with what arises in this heart and mind, right? So uh, perhaps, um, you know, an intense um, afflictive emotion like anger arises. Well, it's ours to work with. So there's a way that it is ours. And we can't necessarily control what we get. That's why it takes so much courage. You know, we can't really control what this body, what kind of sense experiences we have in this body, what thoughts arise, what emotions arise. But yet, um, on some level, reality, they're, they're ours. It's us. It's our experience, right? So that's the owning. It's like we accept 
that this is our experience. But the not owning part, which we might call not self, there was a question about that this morning, is that while we um, connect with this experience, the experiences that arise, and there's a way that we know that they're ours, we also know that they're not ours. So there's a way that we, we, we see that they're not as personal as um, we make them. They're not um, as, as about us as we make them to be. We usually take them personally. We take these experiences personally. Anger arises and, oh, I'm an angry person. This is who I am. And then we have to do something about it. We have to get rid of anger. We have to, we have to look like a different kind of person that we have. We have to manage right these things that arise so that... So that um, so that we have the perfect self. <laughs> but, the, but the understanding that we don't own all this is actually so much more open. It recognizes, not self, the, the understanding of not self recognizes that bodies experience pleasure and pain, that emotions both afflictive and heartwarming arise, that thoughts are part of the creative display of life, and it's this understanding that what arises in our heart, body, minds is this is the way that life is manifesting in the moment due to an infinite number of causes and conditions coming together. And that these causes and conditions arise moment after moment, arise and fall apart and arise and fall apart. So you could say that this moment of me and experience is the confluence of many activities of life. So we see that it's not so personal. It's just the way life has come together at this time. And it doesn't need so much management. (laughs) We see that it flows and that we can get used to flowing like a river. So there's this kind of paradox where we both own and not and don't own our experience. We take responsibility for the experiences of heart, body, and mind and, and respond wisely to what's needed. And yet, ultimately, it's not us, it's not who we are. It's life how life happens to be manifesting at this point in the universe. So we started with the anchor um, as some way to give us some some chance to kind of see clearly in the tangle, the, the tangles of the heart and mind. And then we'll, we're also going to be talking about these other experiences that arise and how to connect with them. So we'll talk about um, sensations in the body, for example. So we have sensations in the body that might call our attention. They're often painful sensations, sometimes pleasant. Meditation can have pleasant sensations too in the body. Um, but sometimes they're painful. And so we can learn everything we need to know about connecting with the sensations in the body. 
So perhaps there's a knee pain. I, I've had knee surgery, so so I have some experience in this. And um, so so what's it like to connect with knee pain? So usually pain in the body, it's like, no, I don't want it. I'm not going to connect with it. I'm not interested. Pleasant sensations in the body, yes, please give me more of those. What's it like to connect with all of it? So what's it like to connect with a knee pain? I have these ideas about a knee pain, but what's it like to feel it? Like to get close. So I have this idea, and, and a knee pain's kind of this thing. But when I get close, I see that a knee pain um, swirls and moves and, and increases in intensity and decreases and changes. And wow, it's a different world. And can I allow that world, can I allow the knee pain to be part of the manifesting of life? And yes, take some ibuprofen if it helps. It's not, you know, it's not like we're, we, we preclude healthy responses to what comes up. But if the only tool in our arsenal against pain is ibuprofen, or Oxycontin, or whatever it is, then, 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 we're, then we're in trouble. Because <laughs> life is, um, it includes pain sometimes. And if we can connect with that and include that, then we can still rest. We can rest. What about emotions? That's another experience of life that we, that we meet on retreat and life all the time, right? How do we connect with emotions? So usually we, we, we either try to keep them at bay, repress them, or um, get lost in the story and kind of drown. So mindfulness is right in the middle. It's like, ah, uh, can we be with an emotion, perhaps feeling it in the body? Notice how it manifests in the mind. Notice if we're trying to hold on to it, if it's pleasant, or trying to get rid of it, it's unpleasant. Can we abide? Can we include? Can we allow? Many years ago, I heard about a teacher who, um, or actually I was at a seminar where a, a teacher, a, Sayadaw, a, Buddhist, a Burmese Sayadaw, was talking about ten kinds of equanimity. Pretty cool, right? Like ten kinds of like peace, equanimity. And back then I thought, well, what do I know a lot about? What could I write about ten kinds of? I was like, oh, I know a lot about fear. I could write about 10 kinds of fear <laughs> that I work with in my practice. So I had fun like just listing all the kinds of fear that came up in practice. And I got up to 24 kinds. And then, so after a number of years of that, at one point I started, uh, things shifted. I started to um, experience more anger <laughs> than fear. So then I was like, oh, I wonder how many different kinds of anger I've experienced and looked at in my practice. So I made a list and I came up with 24 also. And um, 
to me, that was like so liberating. It's like anger is human. It's, I'm responsible for it when it comes up here, but it's not so personal. Sometimes I read the list. I'll read you a few kinds, just for fun. Killer rage. Bulldozer anger. That's like, that kind of anger, right? Fury, seething anger. Simmering anger. Attacking anger. Entitled anger. Defensive anger. Judgment. Powerless anger. Frustration. Blaming. Those are just a few of them. <laughs> Ajahn Chah recommends that you have fun with, um, with your emotions. He says, so we learn a certain lightness. That's what we can learn. It's like we can feel these emotions and yet there can be a certain lightness. He says, see if I can find that story. You want the whole list? I'll see if I, I'll read a few more. I didn't bring the fear one. We just have the anger one for today. Collapsing anger. Passive-aggressive anger. Resentment. Self-righteous anger. Blaming. Self-hatred. Hopeless anger. Disguised anger. Unconscious anger. Annoyance. Irritation. I think that gets us up to 24. (laughs) It's wild, isn't it, that a mind can feel all that? And that's just anger. There's the 24 fears, too. And sometimes there's peace and happiness and joy. (laughs) Just want to make sure you know about that part, too. (laughs) And compassion and equanimity. So Ajahn Chah says, you can try Ajahn, or no, somebody says, you can try Ajahn Chah's method. When you get angry, put a clock in front of you and see how long you can be angry. Next time you're bored, see how long you can be bored. Keep a diary of your boring moments and see if you can beat your own record. (laughs) Compare it with your friends and see who can be bored the longest. Give a prize to the most bored in person. Whatever you encounter, don't run away. Boredom's the worst, right? Like, boredom's the last one we want to feel. I don't know if this is particularly a Western thing or not, but it sure seems like we would rather be sitting here in um, fury rather than be bored. But check it out. You're going to be bored sometime in the next five days if you haven't already been. Like, what is boredom like? Can you, like, can you be okay being bored? Check it out. Try it. Boredom's like this. Hmm. What is boredom like? What we do in our practice is we increase the capacity of our hearts and our minds to connect with, to hold life, to hold um, the wide variety of experiences that arise in this life. And it's such a It's such a beautiful process because that capacity to hold or to be touched by or to touch all of these experiences of life, it's that capacity 
that actually brings rest and brings peace. Because what it means is that, that there's nothing we have to run from. There's nothing that we have to avoid. There's nothing that we have to keep and there's nothing that we have to get rid of. That's peace. There's nothing to struggle against. So the open heart, the open mind, that's the peaceful heart and mind. And you could say that what, 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 what happens is that we develop a kind of um, fearlessness and a kind of um, authenticity. We're fearlessly human. So we talked about spiritual idealism at the beginning. So this kind of freedom and of heart and mind it has nothing to do with some kind of ideal that we set up and feel like we have to fit in, some way that we have to look or be. But it's, it's wholly and completely authentic because it's about what is, whether it's 24 kinds of anger or whether it's compassion and joy. time to end for tonight. So it's fearlessness and and a kind of trust. What happens is that we begin to um, increasingly trust life or trust ourselves. That doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out peachy keen. It means that we trust our capacity to be open. We trust our capacity to be touched by life and to touch life. Trungpa Rinpoche says, I'm a Tibetan teacher, passed away. I would like to say, ladies and gentlemen, that you shouldn't be afraid of who you are. That's the first key idea. You shouldn't be afraid of who you are. You should not be afraid of who you are. It's very important for you to realize that. We do not have to be afraid of who we are. And that is what we will discover as we sit here, connecting with life. Let's just sit for a minute together.
So I think because it's the first day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.